This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. You compare your copy that you're reading now with a copy that was found 300 years before Jesus was born and you find they're identical. The meaning is identically the same. Yes, different words because of translation, but the statement, the meaning, the message is identical to what you're reading. Now, what would you conclude? You would conclude that the years of copying this book have not tainted its integrity. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome, this is Today with Jeff Vines. In today's episode, we're in a new series about talking to God. Pastor Jeff begins this series by exploring how we can trust the Word of God, the Bible, and the translations we have today. Let's hear the rest of this message with Pastor Jeff about talking to God and how we can hear God through the Bible. So first, can we trust the different translations of the Bible to accurately communicate the original documents? Yes. Translations or translators translate the text accurately, but through commentary and marginal notes emphasize the application of biblical truths for specific groups. Different translations, but the same message. Second, can we trust what we're reading today is an accurate reflection of what was originally written? Absolutely. The overwhelming number of manuscripts in our possession allows us to contrast and compare thousands of copies to see clearly the original wording, the original wording and intent of each New Testament author. Okay, third and last question. The accusation will be made. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I got you. The different translations all say the same thing. It's just the application that varies. And that's the thing about the truth of God's word. You have the foundational truth, but you have applications into every area of life. That's why it's so rich. And it remains rich for the entirety of your life because you're in different seasons. And in every season, the Bible speaks a word into that season to give you this ability to endure and to thrive. That's why it's changed human history so often. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I got it. And now you're telling me that because we have so many copies and the Bible stands on a plateau all by itself, that its textual attestation is second to none, that now we can trust that what we're reading today is a representation of what was originally written. Okay, but I have a third question. And here's the third accusation. These aren't the correct books anyway. We're not reading the books because the real books were suppressed. Now stay with me. During the first, here's how the argument goes, and it's becoming more and more popular as seen in the movie, The Da Vinci Code. So here we go. The accusation is that during the first three centuries of the church's existence, a massive array of documents existed for attention and authority for the Roman Empire. So you have all these documents and you have all these little communities throughout the Roman Empire that have their own record of the life and teachings of Jesus and they all contradict each other and the Roman Emperor Constantine came together and he chose the ones he wanted to keep and the ones he didn't, the one that didn't communicate what he wanted them to communicate, he eradicated. And so one day in the middle of the fourth century, a powerful group of sour-faced bishops got together in a resort town called Nicaea. And with the backing of their rich patron, Constantine, the emperor, they put a swift stop 
to all the competitive books about Jesus. Now, that's what they'll tell you. That's basically what the Da Vinci Code propagates. And they published a list of documents at the Council of Nicaea, and they put an end to all the documents that didn't agree with them. Any document that said Jesus was God in the flesh, they kept. Any document that claimed that he was merely a man, they threw away. That's the conspiracy theory. Now, what's interesting is if you've seen the movie or read the book, The Da Vinci Code, the book has sold over 80 million copies. And yes, it probably has something to do with the fact that Dan Brown is an incredible storyteller. But in reality, what happened to that book is any author's dream because it ignited a world controversy and everybody wanted to read it. Even though right on the front page, here's what it says. All the characters and events in this book are fictitious and any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental. When I was teaching pastor in Savannah, the local television station came down and wanted to interview me uh, about the Da Vinci Code and get my take on it. And I gave all these cerebral arguments, but that wasn't the best argument. The best argument came from our lead pastor who said, all I can tell you about the Da Vinci Code is this. You are dumber when you walk out than, when, than you were when you first went in. And basically he's saying, there's no history here. And he's right. The story the Da Vinci Code attempts to tell is not at all original. It's been around for a while. Anybody who wanted to eradicate the Bible would try to say that Jesus is just a human teacher, but he was made into a resurrected God by Constantine. So Constantine could join the government with religion and to manipulate the masses. And he said, all of this happened at the Council of Nicaea where they determined which books would be in and which books would be out. Now, let me read to you a quote from a real historian, which Dan Brown is not. His name is C. John Somerville, who's made a, 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 a livelihood of studying history and works of antiquity. He's a member of advanced study at Princeton University, a senior fellow at Harvard Center for the Study of World Religions. He's an expert in history and religious studies. Here's what he says. Dan Brown says that the Emperor Constantine imposed a whole new interpretation of Christianity at the Council of Nicaea in 325. That is, he decreed the belief in Jesus' divinity and suppressed all the evidence of his humanity. This would mean Christianity won the religious competition in the Roman Empire by an exercise of power rather than by any attraction it exerted. In actual historical fact, the church had won the competition long before that time, before it had any power, when it was still under sporadic persecution. If a historian were cynical, you would say Constantine chose Christianity because it had already won and he wanted to back a winner. Now, what's he saying? Basically this, Constantine did not make Christianity. It was happening long before he was a twinkle in his mother's eye. The deity of Jesus and the victory of Jesus over Roman persecution occurred long before Constantine was even born. Neither Constantine nor the Council of Nicaea determined the deity of Jesus. They didn't determine the books of the New Testament. They affirmed what was already determined hundreds of years before. Unfortunately, the secular world has pushed this ridiculous narrative. And it's robbed us of our origin, meaning, morality, destiny, and hope. Now, let's forget conjecture and drama and deal with history and facts for a moment. And this is why I get frustrated Sometimes when people accuse Christians of being blind or possessing blind faith, and then you go out and believe something like the Da Vinci Code. I've actually stood on the grounds where the Council of Nicaea met. It's in modern day Turkey in the Principality of Iznik. The council was called together because of what became known as the Aryan Controversy. 
Arius was a man from North Africa and he claimed that Jesus was eternally subordinate to the Father and was not everlasting, that he was a created being just like you and me. Now, let me just tell you a side note here because it's humorous and I need some humor. Uh, a legend developed. Now, the Council of Nicaea is not legend, but we know the difference between legend and actual historical event. But a legend developed, a story developed later that St. Nicholas, who was a real father in the ancient church from whom we get St. Nick, stood up at the meeting and struck Arius in the face and he, when he uttered the blasphemous statement that Jesus was not eternal. Now, I thought that's humorous because can you imagine Santa Claus getting mad and slapping some, anybody? Else? Say it isn't so, Santa. Say it isn't so. That we know is legend. What we know is fact is the meeting in 325 was indeed important, but not because it determined the canon or the Apostles' Creed. Again, both had been long determined before the council even convened. Hundreds of years before the council convened, the 27 books of the New Testament had been affirmed and determined. And those books were already being read, studied, preached, and declared as the holy word of God hundreds of years before anyone who attended the Council of Nicaea was even born and before Constantine was even a thought. Okay, Jeff, you said the books of the New Testament had long been determined. How were they determined? And this is how we end. Now stay with me. This is important because the idea sometimes is floated that Oh, it was based on feeling, some kind of subjectivity. I think that one goes in and that one goes out. And if it's subjective, how on earth can we classify the New Testament as the word of God? Was there a criteria? And did God guide the process? When I tell you the criteria, you're gonna have to assume beyond a reasonable doubt that God did, because here's the criteria. Number one, it had to be written by an apostle. You try to write a book and call it the Bible? You try to write a record of Jesus' life and you're not an apostle? You've not seen the risen Lord? Sorry, this is not going into the canon. Not just anybody could write a book about Jesus and say, here you go. The level of authority was reserved for those whom Jesus himself had specifically appointed as apostles. Now, somebody might come along and say, wait a minute, Luke was an apostle. Yes, Luke was a close acquaintance of the apostle Paul and traveled with him as his physician wherever he went. And so Luke does his own research on the basis of Paul's testimony. In fact, records Paul's words and the words of his own investigation as he writes to this person called Theophilus. In short, if you're not an apostle who witnessed the life of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, which is why Jesus had to appear to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, then that type of criterion is anything but subjective. You're not an apostle or a close relationship to the apostle, you're out. What's interesting is we do know, historically speaking, that through the second to the sixth centuries, there are authors who tried to fool the church by writing something about Jesus and slapping the name of an apostle on it. Now, why did they even do that? Because they knew they had no chance of their book or work being accepted unless it was written by an apostle. Now, here's the second test. It had to be old, antiquity, in order for a book to have apostolic authority, it would have to be old. It'd have to be written and dated in the first century. This goes back to what we talked about earlier. There's no gap or the gap is so small. So if this book was written after the time the apostles were all dead, no can do. If it's not old, we can't be sold. And then third, orthodoxy. Most of us don't realize the power of oral tradition in first, second century. This is a time when your word was your bond. 
And we didn't have copy machines. And so a lot of the stories that were passed down were through oral tradition, but they could be then investigated as we put the details together. Then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John witnessing, or at least Matthew, Mark, and John witnessing the life of Jesus. Luke investigating the life of Jesus through oral tradition and what had already been written. Over time, these documents that recorded oral tradition and investigation were recorded, the canon started to be formalized. And at that point, any book that tried to come in that contradicted anything that had been written by those who were closest to Jesus about his death, about his birth, life, death, resurrection, then if it contradicted anything in the gospels because the gospel writers were so close to Jesus and had witnessed these things, then it was considered to be non-canonical. It wasn't gonna make it. So the point is that the New Testament did not result from some nefarious late-in-the-day conspiracy in order for Constantine or those at the Council of Nicaea to privilege one set of books and to suppress the others because it didn't give the message that they wanted it to give. In fact, here's the key now, if you really want to know this, the fact is there were no such books. (laughs) There were no books to discount or count. The books and authors who tried to sneak in something came much later, not during the time the scriptures were written, and they were reactive challenges to an increasingly strong tradition, which is why they didn't make the cut. They were not written by an apostle. They were not old enough. The apostles had already died, and they were not consistent with what Jesus taught and with the historical realities associated with his birth, life, death, and resurrection. So do we have the right documents? You bet your life we do. Not one of the documents that make up our New Testament ultimately failed any of these reasonable tests. They are written by reliable witnesses to the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, there's one more thing. When I was in New Zealand, I think I've shared this before, there was a young Muslim who came to me and tried to convince me, and it was a cordial conversation, no need to get angry. He tried to convince me that Jesus and Muhammad are the same. And... I've told you my response to him. I said, if Jesus and Muhammad are the same, can I ask you a question? Are they both prophets? Yes, they're both prophets. Can a prophet lie? And he said, no, a prophet cannot lie. So immediately I said, but Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He paused, and then he said, well, the Bible has been changed. I said, how do you know that? He said, I feel it in my spirit. Now you think about that. To feel something in your spirit could be based on something bad you ate last night. We deal in facts. And the fact is we have enough textual information to know that the Bible we're reading today is the Bible that was originally written. I want you to think about this for a moment before I stop uh, into this part. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were a major find. They're ancient Jewish manuscripts. They were found somewhere around 1946. Actually, it was a 10-year find because we kept digging. So from 1946 to 1956, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we know they're dated around 3rd century BC, 300 years before Christ. Do you know why they're important? Because we started reading Old Testament passages, and they are identical to the Old Testament passage you and I are reading today. That's uncanny. How can they be so accurate in their copies? Think about it. You have a favorite book that you read. It was originally written, the book that you like so much, it was originally written 300 years before Jesus was born. The copy you have, you bought at your local bookstore. And in some kind of archaeological dig, 
somebody was walking around some ancient ruins and they found a copy of the, a copy of the book that you're now reading. You pick it up, you compare your copy that you're reading now with a copy that was found 300 years before Jesus was born and you find they're identical. The meaning is identically the same. Yes, different words because of translation, but the statement, the meaning, the message is identical to what you're reading. Now, what would you conclude? You would conclude that the years of copying this book have not tainted its integrity. The Dead Sea Scrolls do not do a lot rather to validate the Old Testament due to the fact that they are nearly identical to the versions of the Old Testament we read today. And because they are dated to 300 to 400 years BC, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, Old Testament critics often asserted that the Old Testament books were written well after their events allegedly occurred, sometimes even as late as 1000 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that these books were written around 300 BC at the very latest. This is particularly important for prophetic books like Daniel. Old Testament critics asserted for a long time, now watch this, that Daniel must have been written well after 0 AD, because its prophecies about the Roman Empire are so unambiguous and vivid. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls lends credence to the book of Daniel being actual prophecy. What are they saying? They're saying, man, before scholars said, there's no way Daniel could have known all of these events that were gonna happen in such detail unless he wrote the book after those things happened. But now we know he wrote the book 300 years before Jesus even came to planet Earth. And so now they're saying, on that basis, this definitely has to be a God book. It all tells you this. We have good translations of the biblical manuscripts. Those manuscripts are accurate copies of what was originally written. The books we are looking at are indeed the right books. The New Testament is God's word delivered to us and has the potential beyond a reasonable doubt to change and transform human history. Now I've gone over, so I have to stop. There's going to be more later, but for now, you know, one of my favorite movies is called The Book of Eli by Denzel Washington. One of our campus pastors mentioned that to me yesterday. So I thought, you know, I'm going to rewatch that. So last night I had about an hour and a half before I was going to do so. I'm going to watch the movie. In the movie, Eli is one of only a hundreds that survived a nuclear war. At least that's what the movie leads you to believe. And he's had a special calling from God. And that calling is revealed to us over the course of the movie. We're not sure in the beginning. But what we are sure about is he's living a righteous life in a time of corruption. Evil is everywhere, rape and murders and even cannibalism. But Eli, throughout the course of this dangerous, treacherous journey, is incredibly peaceful while the world is literally falling apart. And that peace and joy that he has because he's connected with something greater than himself is compelling and other people want to be around him and they want to know the source, the secret. He lives with a sense of confidence when everybody else is desperate to find hope. His words, every time he speaks, they bring comfort to those who hear it because he's always speaking from the source, from a book that he's carrying. What I like most about the movie, the book of Eli, is that Eli never claims to have had some type of supernatural experience where God appears in a sky or bright light in some kind of transfiguration. Eli has memorized the book he's carrying. And over the course of the movie, we learn that he's carrying the Bible. He's constantly motivated by the voice that he hears inside. 
as the voice reminds him of the words that he's reading and memorizing. And so that when he speaks, other people hear the words of scripture and they tremble with fear and respect while at the same time sensing a deep, deep joy and longing in their souls. My favorite line in the movie is near the end of the movie and it goes like this. Eli is on the end of his journey and he says, after the war blew a hole in the sky, we're assuming nuclear war, everyone was wandering around wondering how they're gonna survive. Then one day I heard a voice. It is hard to explain, but it was like coming from the inside. But I could hear it as clear as I can hear you talking to me now. It led me to a place where I found the book. The voice told me to carry the book, that the path would be laid out for me, that I would be led to a place of safety. It told me that I would be protected against anyone or anything that stood in my path. And this comes on the hill when he quoted to the young girl who asked to hear a scripture, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We learn near the end of the movie that this book has been commissioned by God himself to a safe place where it can be copied and stored for generations to come. This is the book that can restore civilization. This is the book that can bring hope and joy and meaning. This is the book that speaks deep into the soul. It is the book that is active and alive, sharper or alive and active rather, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. This is the book that has transformed civilizations. It is the book that can transform your life. And can I leave you with this? I know we've been cerebral. Let's move into the existential. God has promised to make you and me into new beings. And what you hold in your hand when you pick up a Bible is a tool for transformation. Don't, don't underestimate this. This has taken many men and women and have transformed, has transformed into something special. This is the greatest investment you could ever make because this book right here, hear me now, restores marriages, sets captive addicts free, brings prodigal sons and daughters home, mends broken hearts, softens hard hearts, gives hope to the hopeless, purpose to those without meaning, and ultimately, it causes the dead to rise again. This is what this lost world needs, and more importantly, it's what you need. God exists. He has revealed himself to the person of Jesus Christ and he's communicated his story through the revelation of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And if you wanna hear from God, if you're a person that says, God, talk to me, God says to you, then pick up the word and read and it will fill your heart and soul and mind. Father, thank you for this day, for your love for us, for the peace that comes over us when we connect with your word, to know that the God of the universe loves us so much that he chooses to communicate with us in a language we can understand. Word revelation. The place that teaches us about the depth of your love that you would send your son Jesus to die for us so that we who are far from God might come near. And as we come near to God, your spirit lives in us and activates the word revelation to us so that any given situation, we have the potential to hear the voice of God speaking to us to give us the greatest victories of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.